It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of iNews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. And Calvin Betton and George Belshaw. It's a full house for the first time in I can't remember how long. We're going to look back at the US Open. We'll be focusing, of course, on the men's singles final that happened just 24 hours ago. Uh, and Novak Djokovic's 24th Grand Slam title. But we'll try and take in the tournament as a whole, our, our highs and lows. I think I know what Calvin's high is going to be, and I think I know what Calvin's low might be as well. Um, but we'll go through all of that. But there is only one place to start. I know I say that a lot, but I think it probably is most appropriate. It's the men's singles final, Novak Djokovic winning in straight sets. Uh, I think as most people predicted, I rather optimistically predicted that it might go to five, but maybe there was never any chance of that. 6-3, 7-6, 6-3 it was in the end. Um, right, I'm going to ask for some positivity around this because I'm conscious from the conversations that we had in our own WhatsApp group over the last 24 hours that it wasn't the most enjoyable final in the world. So does anyone, Calvin, I'm tentatively looking at you, does anyone have anything positive, positive to offer about that final? Um, not a great deal, if I'm honest. Um, I mean, you know, I'm sure, well, I'm sure Novak Djokovic fans will have something positive to say about it. <laughs> but it was strange because I don't even think, I thought it was pretty boring to watch, but I don't even think it was that high level, to be honest. It wasn't like, you know, like where we've spoken before about the Nadal-Djokovic matches where basically you get the same point over and over, but you can only stand, sit in awe, really, of the ball striking and the level of the rallies. I find them, I found them a bit repetitive, but there was no question that the actual level was high. This mm. one last night I thought was kind of mid to average level and every point was the same, mm. um, which I think you're kind of always going to get with Medvedev, like just because of the way that he plays. And that's no real criticism of him is how he's got to win matches, mm. but there just wasn't any, I mean, I texted in the group about halfway through the first set saying there's no way that Medvedev's going to win this match. 
and just because there was just no jeopardy, there was nothing compelling in it that you thought he could get better than this. He kind of was doing what he does, and Djokovic was kind of doing what he does a little bit better. Mm. And Medvedev, in Medvedev's game, for all that certain people like to bang on about how he's a great problem solver and has all these different tactics and what have you, what we saw last night was he basically did the same thing for about mm. three hours. Mm. Nearly won a set, but... I think if you know, even if he'd won that second set, I think he'd still have probably lost like three and three from there. George, I'm hoping you are still there despite the uh, the problems with your internet connection. I can't see you, but I'm going to assume you are and ask you a question into the dark. Did you enjoy any of it? It's hugely disappointing. There's, there is no George Belshaw there, um, unfortunately. That's all right. I, my next question that I've got written down is one that's aimed at Calvin anyway, so... We'll crack on without George. A full house is too much to, too much to hope for, clearly. Um, Calvin, a question from Linny Pin on Twitter. I remember you can always get in touch on Twitter at Unfilter Tennis and you can ask a question in the pod. She says, what was preventing Medi from changing his return court position? Stress of the occasion, the opponent too tired to think. Um, and also I saw someone talking a lot about that Djokovic serving volley out to the out wide in the juice court, and how Met basically it was guaranteed points for Medvedev. Um, it did surprise me that he didn't try anything different. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> again, he only has really one way of playing. I just don't get this idea that he has all these different styles that he can adapt and and solve problems. He kind of does what he does, and that's you know one of the key reasons why he's so successful is because this thing he's got where he stands way back on return. Hmm. And you know he's probably sat there thinking, "Well, I'm going to keep on doing this, and this is this is what's brought me success." Um, and you know he wasn't far off getting that set. You know he'd have argued that he'd, he'd argue that you know if he'd got that set, he's a set, he's a set all, and it's what he's doing is working against hmm. Djokovic. So that's probably why he didn't do it. But he wasn't really giving any input into the return games, but. The thing was that when it, when he wasn't having an input into return games, that wasn't necessarily because of his return. The only reason why you would say he would alter his return position was if he was struggling on return, whereas he was mm. making a lot of balls off return. So that is, he's achieving what he's setting out to do on return in that respect. What was happening was that he was making errors in the rallies. or He was either making errors in the rallies that he wouldn't normally make, and Djokovic was basically getting on top of him in the rally. So the only reason why you change the return position and try and move further into the court is to try and get on top of the rally, but that's not how Medvedev plays. Mm. So it, you'd be asking him to come and do so. It's like saying, well, why didn't you use his slice backhand more? Because his slice backhand shit. So <laughs> that's that's why he wouldn't use it more. Mm. Um, you know, that's He doesn't really have a whole lot to his game other than he stands back on return, makes a lot of returns, and he makes a lot of balls to a good length, and he chases well. That's what he does. It's what brought. It's what took him to number one in the world. It's what's brought him a slam. That's what got him to the final here. But that specific serve, you know, you know the one I'm talking about. And Djokovic was serving and volleying on it a fair bit. You know, where you can take a player so far out of the court. Do you not think to even if he's just doing it on the juice side at Medvedev? Do you not think at some point he thought, "I'm having so little success on this particular serve. I'm going to go stand up on the baseline and take my chances." Well, As well a he player, can do, do that, but then. That? But then all that's going to happen then is Djokovic is going to start serving tee more, and, mm. and Medvedev doesn't feel comfortable with his backhand return off the tee. He can't he can't take it early. His, his body, his limbs are too long. His arms are too long. So yeah, you can say that absolutely. You're going to get caught in a wide serve if you stand if you stand way back. It's one of the basic 
tactics of tennis. But if you move further forward, he's just going to start serving Timor, and he he obviously doesn't fancy his backhand return or his forehand return. What 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 he also could do, Medvedev, there is he could just serve hard flat body if he's going if he's standing further in, hmm. and he's going to catch Medvedev out there because his his shots are so gangly. Yeah, so that's that's the basic thing, right? It's a it's a technical issue that his his game style is almost evolved by by necessity, right? Yeah. Um, and it's also one of the problems that I don't see where he improves because he's he'd be a whole lot better player if he was better in the mid court, but he's not. He's he's pretty bad in the mid court. He can't mm. really hit with. As I, I said, I did a thing with George um, when when George was still working at the Metro, I think, at the start of twenty twenty, so three and a half years ago, about how Medvedev can't hit forehands or backhands. Really, does a bit better on his backhand, but he can't hit forehands down the line and he can't really hit inside out when he gets in the court. That's because he has such long arms, and he has this sort of out-to-in, this kind of outside-to-inside swing, which means that he can't get inside the ball and hit it straight up a line or inside out. If you watch him on the mid-court, whenever he has to go inside out, unless the person's well out of the court, he can't hit a winner there. He's better on hitting them cross-court, but it means you can just cover that. Hmm. And that's not something, that's not a decision that he's having to make. That is the way that his shots are built. I don't really see him ever getting any better at that. Andy Murray was similar at the start of his career. Well, he's, he's continued to dog him through his career, to be <laughs> fair. I say, I mean, mid-court uh, forehand, not, as, not an Andy Murray it's, strength. It's, it's, it's not as as much of a problem as Djokovic, because Murray is a bit more, he's a little bit more tactically adaptable, but he still has the problem that the, the forehand, the, the, the mechanics of his swing are still outside to inside. So it's always going to be, it's hard to say on a, if anyone can see me, if anyone's watching on YouTube, they can see us. The ball's always going to be going like that, as opposed mm. to like that or like that. It's always going to go. It's always going to taper in. Hmm. Tricky, really. I, I suppose for Daniil Medvedev, he can at least say, well, what I've done is good enough to get me to the final of the US Open again, to get me to back to number three in the world. You know, I mean, that that's not a bad career. And if Novak Djokovic is the only bloke who's going to keep beating him in finals, then at least he's got a chance of winning some slams when eventually Djokovic retires. Look, he can go... He's, he's going to... I think he's going to have to be... His, his career will kind of go on like that. He's going to be tough to beat for a hell of a lot of players. He's got a big, flat serve. It's not that accurate, but it's big and flat. And as we saw against Alcaraz, even against the best players, and he's done it against Djokovic before. He did it against Djokovic two years ago here. If they're off, he's a effing nightmare to play against because hmm. he's, he's going to just make you play balls to a length. And Alcaraz found that the other day. It wasn't that he did. wasn't any sort of people trying to make out there's some sort of brilliant tactical genius again against Alcaraz. It wasn't that. He hits balls to a length and he chases and he's very, very, very good at it. And if even if the best players in the world are a bit off their game or off their game enough, they're going to find it difficult to beat him on a, mm. a slow to medium hard court like that is. Mm. Um, let's think about the wider context of this final. Um, a nice question from Andy Lee on uh, email. You can email us, uh, tennisunfiltered at gmail.com is the way to get in touch by email. And Andy Lee says, are we now approaching a worrying transition for men's tennis? There have been eras of outstanding rivalries, e.g. Borg, McEnroe, Lendl, Connors, to Becker, Edberg, to Big Three, Big Four. Um, when Novak eventually goes and Alcaraz takes the mantle as expected, where does the public interest come from? We've got a top 20 containing Sitsipas, Verev, Rude, Fritz, FAA, etc. So is it Sinner? Is it Shelton? It's not as sexy, is it? 
Uh, yeah, it's it's a concern for the men's game, and it's also a concern that there seems to be only one person who can realistically challenge a thirty-six-year-old man <laughs> at major tournaments anymore, and mm. that that would be a concern for me. That you know, if 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 it's not, uh, and and vice versa. Although I know Medvedev beat Alcaraz now, but you think it's basically just those two who are going to win the slams. Mm. Um, and I don't, you know, as you saw, I mean, even Zverev said it himself, the rest are multiple levels below. Mm. Um, you know, so I, I, I do think it's a concern. Yeah, this concern because the other players are just not good enough. Mm. Like, you, you know, like, City Pass isn't good enough. City Pass is just nowhere near the standard. Um, I think he's worse than what he was f- four years ago, if I'm honest. Um mm. And his head's gone. You know, you can see that. Um, <laughs> the other players, for, for players at the top of the game, they've got they've, there's a lot of very one-dimensional players there. Zverev, Sinner, guys like that. They're just exceptionally one-dimensional in how they play. And the best players in the world will just find ways to adapt them. And there always will be ones who've got like little kryptonites for them. Like I don't think Alcaraz particularly enjoys playing Sinner. But the problem is Sinner doesn't get to the point where he's going to play Alcaraz often enough. Um, Zverev, I don't think Djokovic doesn't like playing Zverev, mm. I don't think. But again, Zverev just doesn't beat enough top players to get to play him yeah. often enough. So I think Medvedev, I think you've got Alcaraz and Djokovic who are both playing at exceptionally high level at the minute. I think Medvedev is there most of the time or he's the most consistent of the the, the bunch below. And then I think the others are a good three to four levels below what they are. George, the question is, are we worried about life after Novak Djokovic? I had someone, a regular correspondent, uh, he likes it when I say that, um, saying to me, can can we please start talking about how big one era isn't very interesting? Um, There is a point that once Djokovic retires, Alcaraz is the big one and who can get near him? It, you know, it, there's something to be said for this group of players not being able to touch them. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't look overwhelmingly positive right now. Um, I think it was, a, as I said the other day, it was a good win for Medvedev against Alcaraz. You know, if he was getting tonked in that match again, you're really starting to think, God, if Medvedev got leg level on Alcaraz, who the hell else is actually going to do some damage? I actually kind of feel like Zverev might prove a bit of a challenge to him once he gets back up to full fitness. They had a pretty good match at the French Open a year ago. I know Alcaraz has kicked on a lot since there, and obviously Zverev's had his big injury set back, and it wasn't particularly close this time. But I think Zverev's probably the one who has the level and you know mindset to a degree, not so much of a degree as the very top guys. But you know, I think he can get to a level where he'll potentially test Alcaraz and co again. I, I agree with Calvin. I don't see Sissipas really challenging for the next couple of years. Um, I think his game's gone backwards, if anything, based on everyone else can, knows how to deal with him. Um, and I think, yeah, I said it the other week, I think still the biggest disappointment in terms of raw talent and actual potential to take on these guys in terms of the quality they have is Shapovalov and Ogier Aliassim, and, and those guys just seem a million miles away. But in terms of their overall tennis, I think they've got much more than some of the other guys up there. Um, it's just gone completely wrong for them, both mentally more than anything, I think. What's easier to 
like learn or create or fix? It, it, would you say, Calvin, if I gave you a choice, I'd give you a player who's got all the pieces, but like, you know, like Shapovalov or Odrialisin, the head's all over the place. Or if I gave you a player who has like, and I can't think of a specific one right now, like the, a, a, an iron mindset and the incredible ability to compete, but not a lot of real weapons, which, which would you rather? Uh, you won't do it without either. Like you can't, and, and you can't just create something. I mean, it's one of those. I speak about this a lot, but basically, you, this comment that always cracks me up in tennis, where you get a guy like you know, he's a bit bit out there, and you go, if he can just sort his head out, he's going to be a great player. And I'm like, I can count on one finger or less than one finger the number of players who that's been said about who've in inverted commas sorted their heads out. Like they people say it like as if it's really easy to. To, to deal with and it's, it's the most it's probably the biggest issue of the lot mm. like that you can't changing mindset is tough but also changing and there are players around like I, I think that I think Zverev actually thinks that he's the best player in the world or in big moments I don't think he has doubts other than about his actual shots which are justified there's one thing sort of having this starting to panic, and I've said, I've said this a lot about a lot of players, they'll panic when there actually isn't anything to panic about. I think Zverev's meant purely on, on tennis. I think he's an absolute idiot off the court, <laughs> but purely on tennis, I think his mindset is around about right. But he's also clever enough to know that his second serve isn't very good and his forehand isn't very good. Mm. So that's just more realistic. Whereas such as Felix and... Sitsipas and I mean I don't even know if we can count Shapovalovinix. He's never been to that level really. Like he's never had any of these these major wins like we're talking about. Hmm. Or Sinner. Like I, I question whether they really believe that they're again, as I've said it I've said it before on the pod. There are two things that will take you to the top of the game. You've got to be good enough and you've got to believe that you're good enough. And if you've got both of them, you'll get to the top of the game. And if you've only got one of them, you probably won't. And it, I think it's interesting what you kind of alluded to there is intelligence can be a real setback for these guys. <laughs> like, yeah. you, you sort of need to be able to delude yourself. You ha- you cannot possibly know your weaknesses that, you know, it, it, if you really, really understand your game. I mean, I guess there's an advantage of understanding your game, but as you say, Zverev knows what he does badly, and that's a problem for him. It, it's... It's beyond that. It's like when we talk about choking and bottling, I often think that that's just lack of preparedness that that means. And, and I don't mean that in a critis, critis, critical way. But you look at the guys who don't, who we think they don't bottle it. Well, there's, you know, Alcaraz, Djokovic, Nadal. Federer has a little bit towards the end of his career, but earlier in his career, you wouldn't say so. It's because they step up there and you think, well, nothing's going to fall apart here. I'm brilliant. My game is brilliant. Why, why would I start getting nervous when I'm going to serve for a Grand Slam title? Like, I'm, I'm that good. Whereas, mm. like, when, say you're Alex Zverev and you step up, you're going to think, jeez, oh, hope I'm not going to have to make too many second serves here. <laughs> um, or, or, like, you know, you're, you're Sitsipas and you step up there, you think, i tell you what, I hope I can just hit forehands. Because if I don't, if I have to hit some backhands here, there could be a problem. Mm. Whereas if if you're it, it's not often it's not it's it's mainly just intelligence you know as you step up and you know there's other players who do it like if you don't have a huge serve there's this thing about you know like I think you know a lot of people have said that Dan Evans has bottled a few matches I don't think it necessarily is bottling he just doesn't have a serve that you can go 
that's nailed on. He's going to go and serve, you know, he's going to go and serve four big serves down. That's just mm. not the way he plays. So he's going to have to get into the points and win it into win it in the points. And everyone always used to go. Remember, someone used to go like like Roddick's unbelievable at closing matches out. Yeah, have you seen his serve? <laughs> like, it's like <laughs> guys like guy hits spots at 150 mile an hour. Like you could be the most nervous person in the world if you can do that. Who cares? Like, but you know that that's what it is. It's it's just when you step up, do you believe that that all of the shots in your game are going to hold up? Hmm. And at the minute, there's only two players in the world that can do that. That can say that who, who think that they are, and three when Nadal's fit. Hmm. The inevitable question that comes from this is one of era and weak eras and strong eras. James Mackey on Twitter says, "How many years will Novak Djokovic keep winning slam after slam, and no one in the tennis media will mention this is the weakest era of all time?" I, I'm going to slightly discount the people in the tennis media aren't saying X, Y, and Z because I find it very tedious. But George, has he got a point? Is is this the weakest era of all time? Oh. Um, I'll ask you I, to come in again, uh, Ambassador. Why, why don't you? Why don't you take a turn out and uh, and come in again, and we'll see if we can get you back later. Um, Calvin, th- this kind of links to a, a comment that um, Petch was making on Twitter, talking about Federer. Federer went, and I'll read it out because I might as well got it in front of me. Uh, in response to something about how uh, Djokovic has got no one else to beat except Alcaraz, Petch said Federer went three sixteen and twenty four from 2004 to 2007. I don't think this narrative was uttered too often, if ever. Let's show Novak Djokovic the respect, especially at this stage uh, of his career. It's phenomenal. Calvin, there's a few bones to pick out there, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, that era always gets talked about. It's the, it's the stick that's always used to beat Federer in the greatest of all time debate, that he won all of his, he won most of his titles and in his prime in a pretty weak era. Which mm. it was a pretty weak era. I think this is a weak era as well, to be honest. I'd say even this is probably weaker than the one that Federer came into. The, the one that Federer came into had some really, really good players that probably weren't quite at the level to win slams, or enough enough slams, or you know, or were enough good to win slams. You had um, the bit of pluralization here. Uh, you had your Hewitts, your Saffins, <laughs> your Roddicks. Those guys had, you know, on form. It's a little bit different, actually. I'll tell you where it was different. You had guys like Safin hovering around Roddick, who, if they hit form, even Federer was in trouble. And Federer was beaten in slams by, I don't think Roddick ever beat him, but Safin definitely beat him. Um, whereas these guys now, you don't think that there's a, if they're on form, they're going to beat these guys. They're just not mm. very good. Um and and other guys like you know um, Gonzalez, just huge weapons, but you know not quite of the level to get there. But I'd say that slightly that era was a little bit better than this era in terms of depth. This mm. era now, it's I don't know if you call it an era, but where we are now in the men's game, it's it's not great level. Um, I, I mean, yeah, just to kind of follow up on that Federer stick that he always gets beaten with, his first, so he won his first seven Grand Slam finals and they were against Philippoussis, Safin, Roddick, Hewitt, Roddick, Agassi, albeit that was 2005, that was a pretty old Agassi at that point, right? And then Baghdatis. Um, and yeah, that's like, and I don't know how, li- I think it's really hard to compare across eras. Like, because tennis players 
inevitably are judged by who they beat uh, or, or judged by, you know, playing against someone. So you have such so little empirical evidence. I mean, I, I, yeah. I you know, I would trust, in fairness, Calvin, I would trust your eye a lot better than most um, pieces of empirical data, but... I, th- I think those, like, the names that you've just mentioned there, though, James, you've got Saf- Safin won two Grand Slams. Um, he was a top-class player. Roddick was world number one, um, was an excellent player and made numerous other finals. Um, you know, so just those two alone, you would say, are probably... I'd say Roddick and Safin were better than anybody who's currently playing outside of Alcaraz and Djokovic and possibly Medvedev. Hmm. Um, but well, you'd say Medvedev probably same as Roddick. I'd say Safin was better than Medvedev by a considerable distance. And then you know, if you look at what was below that, you still had Hewitt, who'd won two slams, although was a bit past his best. There, I guess even even in two thousand and five, you know, it's like you say past his best. He's still in the final of U.S. Open. Mm. You know, this it's not like the year after where we got Agassi, where he was basically running on fumes. That in two thousand and five, Agassi could still play some serious ball. Um, our struggling Wi-Fi friend George points out that he reckons Alcaraz beats all of those seven opponents uh, in Federer's first Grand Slam finals, and Medvedev probably would beat most of them too. Which I don't know but what that's, you think. That's, of that. That, that, I mean, that's too binary way to look at it. You can't say that. You, you can't look. Anybody could beat Marat Safin on his day. Marat Safin could beat anybody on his day. You can't just come out and go, oh, Alcaraz beat Safin. Like Alcaraz has beaten one version of Safin. You got <laughs> try looking at the version that beat. I remember that that slam when he beat Federer. Look at the, the semis in the final when he beat Federer in the he beat Federer in a final and he beat sorry he beat Federer in a semi and Hewitt in a final. Look at when he absolutely destroyed Pete Sampras to win a U.S. Open. No one's coming out going. Oh, Alcaraz definitely beat Safin there. Like that's <laughs> that's just pie in the sky thinking there. But Safin wasn't consistent. He'd come out sometimes and he'd be a bit all over the shop. You're not telling me that. You know, it's like what what version of Agassi are we talking about here? You, you know, you go no Alcaraz. Well, the two thousand and five version I, of Agassi, right? Yeah, but the two thousand and five wasn't far off though, James. He had a, he had a bit. He went downhill quick from there. Well, it was more injuries really. His body didn't hold up from there, and he retired in two thousand and six or seven. Can't remember which it was. I think it was oh six. Um, he retired. But I remember that match. I watched that match. I was in Vegas. That was a high level match when Federer beat Agassi. And that was for, for three sets. That was that was close. So talk, just talk going, oh, Al- Alcaraz beats all of them. <laughs> talk to me about watching Federer versus Agassi in Las Vegas. Yeah, it was I think it might have been probably the second time I went to Vegas uh, in a sports bar. I went to watch it, and yeah, it was. You know, you you got to take it in its time. You know, that at the time, Federer was this upcoming guy. He was like he'd, he'd won a couple by that stage, and you were thinking this guy's pretty special. But Andre Agassi on an American hard court was, an, was a tough afternoon for anybody, even that mm. version of him. Wasn't in his prime. He's probably, I think he's, I think the best version of Agassi ever was sort of 94, 95. But, you know, he was, he was still fit, healthy, ball striking. It, it's, it's not having due respect to that generation to just go, Alcaraz would beat all of those. Like, because I tell mm. you now, I, I can tell you with absolute certainty now that Alcaraz would not beat this version of Alcaraz would not beat a on-form Marat Safin, because nobody would. He hit the ball, he served huge, and he he hit the ball harder than everybody else. He could hit through absolutely anybody. Mm. 
Um, George is also making the point about how if you took a player out of the modern era and dropped them 20 years ago with the advances in, you know, quicker, stronger, faster, better, you know, very difficult to, to clarify. I, I mean, what I'd say, I'd also say on that though, James, come back to that one there, that I think the peak version of Federer was in those years and Safin beat the peak version of Federer. And mm. are we really going and saying that, that Alcaraz would, Alcaraz is already better than Federer ever was? Is that what we're saying there? Because like mm. that's... That's a nonsense if that's what we're saying. Hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, in terms of that, what what I don't think there's as much credence as that. It's, again, it's not binary. The game doesn't move in incremental steps into what technology and all that kind of thing does. If you look at the way that the game moved between, say, 1980 and 1990, it was absolutely huge. Whereas if you look at the difference in the game between 2013 and now pretty much almost nothing has changed like you could say that you know is which would win the 2013 version of Djokovic or the 2023 version of Djokovic there's there's mm. not a great deal you know mm. so it's not it's not as straightforward as that I don't think the game has actually moved much since then and if you look at just look at serving speeds they're the same look at mm. serving speeds from say 2006 they're around about what the serving speeds are now if you look at I, you know you look I, at those guys play I would guess spin rates are probably up, like the ability to hit the ball with more spin at the same sort of speed. I don't know. The ball must have evolved a reasonable Maybe, amount. But then, then I, don't, I don't even know about that. Sergio Bruguera was winning French Opens in, I think, 93, 94, and he was hitting as much top spin as anybody ever has, probably as mm. much as Nadal has. Mm. So I don't even think it's more just the game and how the game adapts to it. But I think, you know, it's, I think possibly... If you put the current version of Andy, if you put the best version of Andy Roddick, if you just transported him into the game now, the best version of him before he 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 went downhill quickly. But if you put that version of Andy Roddick in, he's, I think he's probably still a top six or seven player. Hmm. And if you put the the version of Marat Safin that won the, I'm gonna say two thousand and five or six Australian Open five. I think um, I just looked yeah, at it. Yeah, two thousand and five. Yeah, then. He'd still be beat. He'd still be capable of beating anybody in the world right mm. now. So I don't think the game in that period, and that's that's crazy to say. That's eighteen years ago, but I don't think it's crazy to say that because you know racket technology, movement, athleticism, and that kind of thing hasn't moved greatly in that time. Just um, a, a little frisson. Do you know who Marit Safin beat in the first round of the two thousand and five Australian Open? I don't. Who was it? I bet George knows, but he's probably not quick enough on the chat to reply. But it's Novak Djokovic, six love, six Did two, right. six one. Yeah, it's just, it's yeah. I mean, George has got it right. In fairness, um, I think it's got sort of semi in kind of Djokovic circles. It's got semi legendary status. That match is something that really kind of, and I think he's talked about it. It was a match that taught him how good you had to be at Grand Slam level. Um, because obviously he was probably only 18, I think he would have been. He's an 87 birthday, isn't he? So, oh, he would have been 17 going on 18. Um, but yeah, I yeah. think it was a pretty pretty big lesson he got taught that day. Um, right, we've been dragged wildly off track. That's fine, I don't mind. Very interesting. Um, why, sorry, I, the, the, I didn't get to the bottom of it. Why were you in Vegas? I just on holiday. Oh, right, okay. About that. Just, yeah, just, yeah. So see, this yeah. is the thing. When the pound was that strong, it was probably it was probably yeah. like two dollars to the pound, and Happy everything was cheap. Back then. Oh, Happy God. days back then. It was it's funny, so you know, because I was saying to somebody, and again, don't want to get too topical here, but 
when like in New York last week, we thought everything was so expensive. Everyone was saying everything's so expensive. But when you factor in like what the pound was, you know, back in the day, I, Americans, I don't think think it is that expensive because if you factor in the pound somewhere between like one point five something like that, then it's not that expensive at all. It's probably just the same as what you're paying in London for stuff. Mm. Yeah, I mean that is, that is the basically the difference. Um... I mean, obviously, right? Because it's like 1.2 or something now, is it? Yeah, um, I think 1.18 just... even last week. It was like nothing. I mean, it's just painful. Whereas I remember going, I only ever went to the States once as a kid. And I remember going and like, we were, all my parents would talk about was how cheap stuff was. They just thought, oh, yeah, we yeah. could live here. Like the cost of living so low, like it would be great. And, you know, how food was really cheap and, like we would as kids, we were never allowed to buy stuff. Like the idea of yeah. buying like sweets or drinks while we were out was just like a complete no no. Um, even though like we we were reasonably well off, but it was just my dad's Scottish. Um, and <laughs> in America, it was the only place it was different because he's like, yeah, why not? It's Monopoly money. Like everything's just so cheap. <laughs> it was completely yeah. different. Um, yeah. Let's talk about some tennis again. Uh, Ian Warren, Wazza, uh, on Twitter says, is it time to reduce the length of a Grand Slam? I just think in the second week, there are not enough matches. And three days between matches for the men, the top after is too much. With NFL Week 1 starting the same day as the men's final, why not finish the tournament earlier? Um, I've never really thought about it. I'm sure George has thought about it because he loves a scheduling uh, question. But Calvin, I imagine if you made the Grand Slams any shorter, your doubles guys for a start would get pretty squeezed, right? Yeah, and I, I wouldn't say make them shorter, but I do agree with him that the last sort of the last third of the slam is getting ridiculous. How little tennis there is. There mm. are ways around that, you know. I, you know, you can you can go like maybe start the doubles a little bit later. You yeah. start the doubles a couple, of, and then you give more exposure to the doubles. Then instead of trying to get, you know, you can put, put some of that on the bit on the bigger courts or that kind of thing, or maybe have the doubles as. Yeah, you could change it to some sort of round robin type thing where the first, you know, two a load of groups of three and mm. two groups or one or one one pair going through to the next round, just having more tennis on. But I mean there is tennis on, that's another thing. You know, that again that's something that tennis needs to get on on with. It's like there is tennis going on in, in those times, but they just don't show enough doubles. There's doubles matches going on on the outside course and they're attracting big crowds, but I do think they need to find some way of doing it, whether that be spreading, you know, another way spreading the first rounds over four days instead of two hmm. and doing it that way. It's not a major problem to have, you know, two or three days off or two days off or something like that. That could be a way of doing it, but it is ridiculous. It does get ridiculous whereby the second Tuesday, you've basically only got two matches to watch hmm. um, in a, in a session. Yeah, I mean, I I always feel it keenly as a journalist because like the first four days are so insane because there's so much going on, and then the contrast yeah. with the second week where there's so little going on. I guess it all comes down to in the end, do the broadcasters feel they've got enough tennis to fill the hours? Because that that's one of the reasons tennis is such a valuable product because you can have like fifteen hours of coverage for for eight weeks of the year, yeah. which is loads of hours, you know. It's not just quantity, obviously, but that is a consideration for schedulers when they're like, we've got a live sports channel here and we don't have that much. You know, if you've only got football, football's only 90 minutes long. 
And so you do want yeah. that kind of, you know, that, that bulk. And I suppose that's what tennis provides. I mean, I've always said that I think Wimbledon, when they had the middle Sunday off, was about right. The scheduling was about right there. You had the one day off. So I don't know, maybe start it on a Tuesday or something. Mm. Um, you, I you, mean, you I know, think... Then you can... The thing is with Middle Sundays, it, it was illogical because it's one of the few days that lots of people have off. Like, so can yeah. actually go and watch ten. Like, so, so that I think, to be honest, and it was I've more that this... I'm saying it was more that thirteen days. I think was right. The, you, you know, about right. Yeah, I think, and it's not practical in a lot of ways, but I actually think three weekends would be a better way to do a Grand Slam, and like do Saturday, Sunday, maybe take both Mondays off you know, first and second Monday off and have Saturday, Sunday of the the weekend before the first week and then play through the week and then Saturday, Sunday again, then Saturday, Sunday again. Because that's prime time. Like, that's when your TV time is most valuable. It's too scattered, though. It's too scattered. Like, so you lose I think the narrative like, by then. Yeah, I think, you know, I do think it's just noticeable that how quickly the life goes out of a tournament, I think. Even when I was there and I'd left by my last day there was last Sunday. And it was noticeable that on that Sunday there was just hardly anyone around, like the, the player restaurant and, mm. the, and the player lounge and that kind of thing, from a couple of days before where you couldn't get a seat at a table. Yeah, that it just it just gone so quickly. But yeah, um, again, they'd argue though, powers that be would argue, why would we want to reduce it? We're selling out every day, and there's plenty of tennis to watch. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, the commercial commercial pressure isn't there to to make the changes. They won't. Um, they'll never reduce. They'll never have more days. It's more likely they'll go to. It's more likely they'll do what you said there, Jim. Too wouldn't surprise me in the next ten years if they start doing. Well, French have already done it. French They've already had an extra yeah. day. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it wouldn't really... surprise me if we start doing Saturday, Sunday, or starting the Saturday before, and, mm. and doing it that way. Yeah, Wimbledon won't do it for a while because they've already done one big change and they're still feeling queasy yeah. about that. So they'll need ten years to the recover. Gra- the grass is also a problem for that. They couldn't have. I don't think you could have. An extra two days on the grass, right? Of course, even though it'd be the same amount of wear, because it'd be the same amount of tennis. Although you'd be more concentrated on courts, I guess. Yeah, and also they'd have to let people practice on Mm. those days, so the courts would still get used. Yeah, like you know, you know, if you did it like that at the other slams, you'd have to allow. I mean, players want match court practice, so Mm. you'd have to let them have it. So I think that that you wouldn't have the same wear. You'd have more. Yeah. Um, let's move on to uh, a couple of questions I've got about the women's draw, um, because we obviously talked about the women's final a bit uh, yesterday, um, but just looking at the sort of more wider questions, um, something from Mark, a.k.a. Dr. Handsome from Darwin, who has been in touch before, um, and he said lots of lovely complimentary things about the podcast. Thank you, Mark. Um, quick question for you, lads. Iga Shontek is clearly the world's best player. I mean, some might take issue with that now that Sabalenka and, uh, is the world number one. But anyway... Yet her, I think probably when he sent this email, she was still number one. Yet her marketability seems to be so poor. Why do you think this is? Um, well, I, I can kind of speak to it a little bit, um, Calvin, and, and I'll obviously let you come in afterwards. But she is now an IMG client who are the most successful um, managing agency in the world. And she has signed a couple of pretty big deals in the last three or four months even, um, including a big ambassador deal with Visa, I think it was, um, and one or two others. So I think that is changing and, and her, like, you know, the amount of money she makes, the amount you'll see her on billboards and adverts will change. But um, there probably are reasons, Calvin, that she's not 
up till now anyway, and it, it's probably been the most marketable, and it's probably not just related to who her agent is, is it? Uh, no, but again, I don't think it's something that she would care about, just how marketable, how marketable she is. I think she'd probably be more interested at the minute in trying to make a trying to be more consistent in the major tournaments. And mm. She's still, I think, the best player, best women's player. And mm. isn't quite winning as many matches as you can. You can't, you know, it's it's kind of out of your control how marketable you are. Unless, yeah. well, you say that, but then, I mean, are we, are we going to talk about the quite obviously staged um, Arena Sabalenka racket smash last night? Well, absolutely, let's talk about it. So um, for people who haven't seen this, and I'll link it in the uh, show notes, um, it was a video from those those sort of CCTV cameras that they have in some of the players' areas, like the warm-up area and the gym and stuff. Um, although not in every gym, I think. I think that, I think that's right. Anyway, and Arena Sabalenka came off court, put her racket bag down, quite calmly took a, well, I don't know, took a racket out of it, smashed it on the floor, and then went and put it in the bin. Um and this kind of causes, as people have seen, a bit of a Twitter stink. Uh, people saying that, oh, it's a private moment. They shouldn't be filming this. They certainly shouldn't be publishing it. And then actually, when you broaden the screenshot out, you see the Netflix crew is also perched in the corner there. Um, Calvin, you sound pretty convinced that this was a completely staged incident. Yeah, at first, uh, it, it was a weird one. When I first saw it, I thought, oh, that's a weird way to smash a racket. Like, you know, the way that you go about it. And I say that as an expert of somebody who smashed a lot of rackets um, <laughs> that, um, over the years, not so much now. Um, and then I like, didn't think about it anymore. And then initially I thought it's a bit, you know, a bit weird that they've got a camera in there and it's filming it. And then when I watched it more, I, I didn't see the Netflix people there, but I know that they have these permanent Netflix cameras around. And then I thought then, yeah, that's, she's definitely either decided herself. That's what she's going to do because she thinks it would be good for a brand. Again, it's content, in inverted commas, and people are talking about it, which I think she quite likes. She's very social media savvy, isn't she? Um, and then I thought, well, is it that, or is it that she, there's actually been a discussion with the people at Netflix? Like, you know, do you fancy doing this? And But something's happened, because it's definitely, definitely staged, because that's definitely not how you go about smashing a racket. It just was so unnatural. I'm not sure. I so I I I don't know the Netflix crews really well, but I, I I've interviewed a few of them. I've had drinks with a few guys who sort of crew on the Netflix stuff um, for Box to Box and who are the production company who do all this. And I I don't think it's their style to be like actively like can let maybe it'd be good if we got some footage of you smashing a racket. It just doesn't strike me as their kind yeah. of modus operandi if Sabalenka's I, I don't know like I think it might just be like she's got out and she's like she's still seething like you could kind of see on court but I don't she think was, she was seething though that's the when she went in there I don't think she was seething the way that she she kind of puts the trophy down and gets a racket out and it's not it seems strange to say when she smashes it it's not absolute rage <laughs> and I've seen enough rackets smashed to know that. It, it, I'm certain it was staged Calculated. either in a yeah in her own mind or in, under agreement with someone else. And that might not be the Netflix people; might be with her agent or something. Mm. Um, but I don't know. You know, she's but like I say, she does quite like the attention. 
and that kind of thing. And she certainly had that today. Hmm. Judy Murray, incidentally, um, was one of the people who said this footage should never be made public. And I quote a private moment in an empty training room at this point of losing a grand slam final. And then today she posted something with the broader screenshot with Netflix. And then she said, Oh, it's obviously staged. And I just saw it. And I, I thought, I just thought I'd say something because why not? And so I said, Oh, you know, those Netflix cameras do pretty much if, if you're featured, they follow you around almost all the time when you're on site. Um, so, you know, you probably end up not noticing them by the end. That is kind of how they want to where they want you to stop noticing them. And I replied and then she then instantly deleted the tweet. So I don't know. I don't know what's gone on there, Judy, but feel feel free to drop me a message and you can come on and talk about it. I, I would welcome that. Um, mostly to hear an argument between Judy Murray and Calvin Better. I think I'd pay um, quite a lot of money for that one. But <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I, I, just to come back to the question from Mark, I, I think, to be honest, one of the th- reasons Iga Shontek has been less marketable and less popular is that she's from Poland. And that's not to say that people from Poland aren't marketable. But if you think about Robert Lewandowski, for example, he has been as successful... Uh, as arguably, you know, his peers, who you would name as equally brilliant, you know, Messi, Ronaldo, Ibrahimovic, and yet he is the least kind of marketable is kind of the word. Like, he's just the least seen. You don't see him doing X, Y, and Z. And uh, again, I, I think it's partly to do with the market that, you know, marketeers want to hit. You know, Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, they hit a massive South American market. They've obviously broken America in a whole new way. The, the Polish market, the Eastern European market, are advertisers that interested in that? Depressingly, probably not, because they don't think there's as much money there. I think, ironically, Poland's a really like growing economy, and it's a, a country with actually loads of people in it. It's why it's been quite successful in sport recently. But, um, yeah, that, that's just my two cents, anyway. Um, let's move on to a question from Claire Hannon who says, where do you see Coco's career going forward? And would this have happened without Ostapenko taking out Igor Shontek? And finally, does she need and still need new forehand? Um, we'll maybe leave the forehand to the end, Calvin, because I feel like we may have done this to death. But um, do you think if Ostapenko hadn't beaten Igor Shontek, that Goff still would have got over the line in the quarterfinal and beyond? No, I think Shontek would have beaten Goff. I mean, I know she beat her the last time she played. Uh, Goff's beach front at the last time she played, but their records are so dominant. It's still that, seven and one, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd, you know, you'd be crazy to say that she'd have won that, but she didn't beat her. So, you know, you can only beat what's in front of you. Um, I expect that, being that if she keeps Brad Gilbert on board, being that Schwantek does have a tendency to get knocked out in some of the, in about 50% of the slams, mm. she seems to have a loss that you wouldn't really expect at all. I could see Goff picking up a couple more because I think that there's a place where she becomes maybe the second best player. Um, and I'm not saying going on and win. I, I, there was a period where I thought she'd win 10 or 15 slams. Mm. I don't think that'll be the case now. But I could see her ending up with six or seven, maybe, just by... It's tough to say because maybe Shrontek just gets more consistent. But then we don't know. Maybe, you know, Rabakina's a hell of a player. Sabalenka will certainly win win some more, I think. Osaka's coming back, and she says she's going to play an even bigger schedule. 
I mean, that's a wild card, isn't it? We don't know where that lies. So <laughs> yeah, that's true. I don't. I mean, women's tennis is just like again. I keep saying it's so hard to predict. Like mm. it's, it's probably less than a year ago that we were listing all these players who you thought, you know, tennis. And I'm not saying it's not in a good place, women's tennis. But the players who we were listing back, you know, a year ago, a year eighteen months ago, Raducanu, Andrescu, um, Anisimova, players like that. Are just miles off, and it's not mm. like they're old; they're all younger than twenty-five. Yeah, and you know, Barty's retired. Who would have thought that? <laughs> and you know, and, the, and but then here we are. This is what you know. This is where we're at. So, same where does Coco Goff's career go? I, I think she'll win more slams. Mm. I don't think she'll challenge as the best player in the world. But that interesting. I wouldn't surprise me if she did either. You mentioned Naomi Osaka. I mean, she was actually in New York doing um, one of the they do a mental health kind of, I guess seminar. It's like a Q and A uh, with Michael Phelps among other people, um, which is pretty. It's pretty interesting to read actually, um, and it it just made me think that like, Naomi Osaka is a really like unusual introverted individual. I don't know that tennis has had someone like her maybe ever, um, but I think a lot about some of the players who've come back after childbirth. And how different they've been. I mean, Alina Svitolina is a great example. Like, she's a completely different person now, I think, and and certainly a different player. Like, she's just something has. It's like a switch has flipped. Like, she was such a classic sort of would be good enough to make a quarterfinal and then would bottle it somewhere along the line. And now she's like, she's almost total opposite. She's like, she's just scrappy and gritty and has no fear. And I wonder, and it, it's it's very reductive to say, oh, childbirth does this to someone. But I do wonder if Naomi Osaka is going to come back and just... Because, you know, her game was all there. Like, you know, Calvin, you, you were saying earlier about players who, you know, or if they can sort their head out and they never do. <laughs> I mean... Like... I, don't think it, I don't think with Osaka, though, it was a guy sort her head out. She's won four majors. Yeah. Like, it's not like Svitolina where you can go like, you know, yeah. I'm still to be convinced that actually Svitolina's any... She was a, you know, Svitolina was a good player before. She's only had one tournament where she's done better than what? The quarterfinals. Did she make semis at Wimbledon? Uh, yeah, she made semis at Wimbledon and quarters of the French before that. Which, you know, I mean, yeah, that's... So, you know, it's, that's a run yeah, that would give you still world like... number two in the women's game two years ago. <laughs> but it's still kind of like where she's around about where she, what she's been capable of before, I think. You know, it's like, I think she, yeah, you know, she seems to, she seems to be a little like she's enjoying it more now. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that's it, Calvin. I think that's the one is that like she, yeah. she has a different demeanor on the court as well as okay, similar. Osaka, with Osaka, it's just going to depend on how much she plays, whether yeah. she wants to play. You know, if she, if, she, if I'm absolutely certain that if Naomi Osaka plays a full schedule, then she's going to win at least another four. Like, because she's probably still, I don't know if she's better than Svantec, but she's capable of just beating anybody just by the way she hits the ball. And she has the mindset to go and win when it's at the back end of tournaments. But I I think that's a big if because she's going to have a child then. Mm. And she just has so much more. She seems to have a lot of interests outside of tennis. And you never know. She seems to, she's saying that she's missed the game and she wants, and, and she seemed honest when she said that. Uh, it's just going to be whether she actually really wants to be a tennis player, which she might not, and that's perfectly fine. 
Yeah, and and you know, saying you miss it is completely understandable. But then you know, if you're all of a sudden playing a five hundred in some place you've never heard of, and you know, losing second round, do, do you still love tennis at that yeah. point? You know, that's yeah. that's really when you've got to find out if you love it. Um, I've got a few other comments, less questions, more comments from listeners. Um, kind of to do with our uh, discussion the other week, Calvin, about the best tournaments to go to. Um, Jenny uh, says another good tournament, 250, is the Moselle Open at Metz, um, a lovely old town, indoor in November, um, which I guess that's probably one of the sort of, um, you know, it's not a challenge, it's 250, but it's probably a French tournament. I seem to remember they get really good crowds at Metz, right? They, they probably sell out quite regularly. Yeah, I mean, in France, it's in, in general. I mean, <laughs> Luke's actually playing in Rennes this week and there was a video earlier one of the other players posted it that like they have full-on like light shows before the matches it looks like the ATP <laughs> finals that's a challenger <laughs> in Rennes in France especially around this time of year in France I think kind of autumn time they yeah. put on some real big real big like well they have a couple of main tour events and they've got loads of um I mean I'm going to Saint-Tropez for a challenger next week mm. <clears throat> um they've just got loads of you just love their tennis. Yeah, mad for it. Um, and she also says, Kitzbühel Outdoor is a good late summer event. And I, a picturesque Austrian town, she says, and I have been told before that, that you know, it's the swing we take the piss out of, but apparently it is basically what you want to go do. It's yeah. like Gestad, Bestad, Kitzbühel. Um, Carolyn has also been in touch on the same topic. Uh, she says, just thought we'll give my two penneth on tournaments to visit. Uh, I agree with George Monte Carlo's fantastic visit. We stayed in Monton, which is a nice town, just a train ride away from Monte Carlo, and obviously much cheaper. Great tennis and wonderful views. I also loved Rome. I went in 2007, watched an Italian beat Federer, fabulous atmosphere. Madrid, great too. And you have a great view of the practice courts, which I think is a really valuable thing. I always tell people when they come to Wimbledon, I'm like, go and watch practice because, you know, it's the closest you'll ever get to somebody's gut. And it's utterly fascinating. Um, and she also says, enjoyed Basel. Nice city away from the tennis. We got a train to Lucerne, which is lovely. Unfortunately, Federer pulled out with injury the year we went. Uh, and finally, been to Kitzbühel twice. Not always the best lineup, but the views are fab and the Bratwurst. So Kitzbühel seems to be the winner at the moment. Um, always keen to hear what people say about tournaments they've been to, mostly because it informs my um, budgeting decisions for next year when I go into a meeting with my boss and go, oh, no, I think we could. I think it'd be really interesting if we went to Kitzbühel, actually. Yeah, there's some really interesting stuff there. Um, and I just had to make up on the spot and then not say wine. Um, there's a couple of news bits that we've kind of missed out, Calvin, uh, over the US Open that we've talked about kind of privately and not on the podcast. Um, one of which is the proposed ATP WTA merger. And the other is this WTA final story. I guess we'll start with WTA finals thing because there's a bit more meat on the bone. It's not in the realms of speculation. Um, the WTA finals is not going to Saudi Arabia. So well done WTA for not taking the Saudi Arabian um, dollar this year. <laughs> I suspect it's a temporary state of affairs. Um, slight uh, miscue, I suspect, that they are having it in Mexico uh, the day after the Billie Jean King Cup finals in Seville. Now, this uh, happened last year when they had them in Fort Worth um, and the Billie Jean King Cup finals were in Glasgow the next day. There were all sorts of stories. Elise Mertens, for example, who won the doubles at WTA finals, she like ended up making her match for Belgium about three hours to spare and you know, the Americans got lucky because they were, well, lucky. They were given a draw that meant they didn't have a start until Wednesday night, but that was pretty much exclusively so they could get Coco Goff along. Um, yeah, Calvin, I know there was some criticism on Twitter about this, and you were saying, well, what else do you want them to do? 
I think it again. I don't think it's black and white because, like last year, having it in Fort Worth was just stupid because it wasn't even a good event. Mm. So you you brought you, you know they they put it there for no particular reason. It just caused a problem. This is different because, as we saw two years ago, the Mexicans love their tennis, and they especially like they put they'll put on a great event again. And I think for that reason, I think you know it's just one of those things. Tennis is a global sport. You've kind of just got to swallow it up. Like U.S. Open final was yesterday. Davis Cup starts. Is it tomorrow? In, uh, yeah, tomorrow in Manchester. Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. So you know, no one's saying anything about that. You know, it's just one of those things. I've got players. I know there's players this week who are playing tournaments in Europe, and then they've got to get to China the week after. It's mm. it's not something that doesn't happen. It happens regularly, and you know, it's, yeah, you can get if if you're lucky stroke unlucky enough to play in the final one day and then your country plays the next day or the day after that you've got a problem but i'll tell you this every single player would take being in the final of the the wta finals in mexico and then having to get to uh fed cup or billy jinking cup two days later if that was the option the money but I, I guess. I, I, if, if if it was if it wasn't i, I don't think WTA at the minute, I don't think we're in, it might sound bad, but, but I don't think we're in a beggars can be choosers type thing. You've mm. got to go, right, where, let's find places where they put on good events and then we'll work the other stuff around that. We yeah. might have to take some sacrifices because there aren't enough good WTA events at the minute. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose it's, yeah, it's that, you know, that it's that Venn diagram where you need enough money, you need to be a good event. The thing that probably suffers, yeah, a few time zones, a bit of jet lag, probably the not the. I guess that the reason it's slightly different from a normal tournament, like with a final on the Sunday, is all of the WTA finals players will be playing until at least Friday, right? Because of the round robin format. Yeah. So that's eight singles and 16 doubles players who get. So that's basically the top, give or take, 24 players in the world, all of whom yeah. will probably be in Davis Cup teams. So, or Billie Jean King Cup teams, I should say. Um, so that's the, I think that's the reason it makes it slightly different with WCA finals. But, but even even then, though, James, change the scheduling. You don't have to have this thing oh, where you always I mean, have a yeah. day off in between. What do you need a day off in between? It's best of three sets. Yeah, Why yeah. not just start it on a Monday? Don't have days off. Finish the thing on a Saturday mm. if need be. Like, what do you need to finish it on a Sunday for? Well, from the thing we discussed with Grand Slams, because then you're not having ticketed events on a Saturday and Sunday, which is when you're going to sell the most tickets. Yeah, maybe so, yeah, but then I'm not sure in places like Mexico that that's such a big thing. They live a different – it's a different culture over there. Mm. Like, I still think you'd fill the stadiums. Well, um, and yeah, they sell out like and crazy. Run, run, run them at yeah. night. They're going to have to play at night anyway because it's going to be too hot. So they'll probably – you know, so it's not even – it's different there. Like, have, have events at night. You don't have to do everything. Like, everything doesn't have to be run like an ATP event. Yeah. Like, where – you know, where it's like, right, we start at 11 a.m. and we go through the day. And, and don't get me wrong, the ATP doesn't do that smart either because these indoor swings that we've got coming up, have a look at how many stadiums are half full in the daytime. Yeah, but, at best. But, I mean, we go to, we yeah. go to China where famously they never sell any tickets, but yeah, um, that's that's a whole that's a whole other thing that I'm sure we will talk about. Um, the other thing to mention is just, and it was a story I think that Simon Briggs broke, um, maybe a week ago, just preliminary talks between WTA and the ATP over a merger. Um, Milos Raonic made an interesting point that it, you know, because it was kind of mooted that this was to fend off 
you know, the threat of Saudi Arabia taking over the WTA or whatever it might be. Milos Reinich, who's an intelligent guy and thinks about these things on a whole different level, pointed out that actually it'd be much more attractive to Saudi Arabia to have the ATP and the WTA aligned because then that would make it a lot less messy. I don't, I, I mean, I yeah, wouldn't be surprised. Uh, yeah, I, I still don't think it will happen unless the Saudis are somehow involved because I don't think the men will agree to it. I don't think the ATP will agree to it. As and in, you don't think again, the two tours would merge unless someone was writing yeah. a very big check? Yeah. It wouldn't be in the... They wouldn't... You know, again, this is not my opinion. I'm talking about human nature here. It wouldn't... And I, not just... It's not me predicting. I know because I've spoken to male players. Mm. They they won't agree to a merger whereby basically they give up a chunk of their money to give to the women's tour. Yeah. Intriguing. Um, that's almost all we've got time for, unless you've got more. I just Calvin. want to say something quick. Yeah, just just quickly that I think that nothing has been said about, not enough has been said about. It, if anything, is just what a successful couple of weeks it was for British coaches um, in the the men's doubles. Um, Joe Salisbury and um, Rajiv Ram won with Chris Eaton and Louis Caillet. No, Louis French Canadian, but he's British citizen now. Mm. Um, uh, Dan Keenan. Won yeah, I saw Kino posing doubles. with almost all of yeah. the doubles. <laughs> yeah, he won. His players won the mixed and the women's doubles, um, mm. and then also great weeks earlier on with James Trotman and Jack Draper had a good had a good tournament. Craig Veal had a great tournament with his his two girls. Um, mm. Colin Beecher had a good tournament with uh, Dan Evans, and you know it doesn't get say enough. Britain has very very good tennis coaches, mm. and when and I don't want to get get dragged into a. When the, when the media say this, the media say that. Although I will say, it does piss me off when, and it, and it happened this week on a couple of occasions where certain members of the media were suggesting that certain players needed to get, in inverted commas, more experienced coaches um, than their British coaches. Which and I and that just means well known coaches, not better coaches. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, th- I think you know. Let's just wanted to shout those guys up because they've done a hell of a job and they'll continue doing a hell of a job. And and we should say, Calvin, you've had not a bad couple of weeks yourself with Henry and Jules going deep was, and Luke, Luke right. winning a title with um, uh, with Skander last week. Is that right? Yeah, they won it in Istanbul, and yeah, you know, me and Baz did all right in um, in New York as well. But um, yeah, but yeah, it was yeah. Like I say, there are good, there are very, very good British coaches, very good, mm. top class, elite level British coaches, and. It, it doesn't get said enough because of the failings in other areas of the British game. Hmm. Well said. And yeah, I, I would add my, my congrats to everyone who's, who's had a good couple of weeks out in New York. I've, I've sort of, I mean, it's great being in Paris for the World Royal Cup, but I have really missed not being out in New York. It's such a good tournament, such a special place. Um, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to everyone who's been in touch with their feedback for Sky Sports. Um, I'm gonna well, I'm gonna try and pass some on, and they won't listen to me. But anyway, um, we will do a segment um, either midweek or or next week when we do our regular weekly podcast. Um, just kind of looking back on Sky, and I'm gonna try and speak to some people at Sky and um, find out exactly how they fe- felt it all went. Um, because obviously, I mean, inevitably teething problems. But um, anyway, we'll get into that much more. Um, thank you very much for listening and getting in touch on email, on Twitter, on DM, on all sorts of things. Um, it's been a pleasure, kind of. Enjoying the US Open with you um, from back this side of the Atlantic. Um, We'll be back, of course, next week. Um, Make sure you leave us a rating, a review, an email, a DM, whatever you like. Um, But as I always say, the most important thing is please do come back next week. 
Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.